You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open the word of our God together. We turn to the gospel according to John chapter 13, beginning at verse 1 to the end of the chapter. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, A person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the scripture he who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he meets. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. 
Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. I preach to you this morning from the word of our God as you find it in the first six verses of the next chapter, the Gospel of John, chapter 14. And there our Lord Jesus Christ is still speaking, and he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going to there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, Last Thursday evening, as our sister of Empopta lay dying, her family read a number of consoling Bible passages to her. And I have chosen one of those passages as our text for this morning. It begins with those beautiful words, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. 
Now we might begin by asking ourselves, why did the Lord Jesus Christ say this? Why does he utter these rather interesting words at the end, at the beginning of chapter 14? Well, of course, the answer has to be in light of what has transpired in the previous chapter, chapter 13. There the world of the disciples is rocked by a number of things that Jesus says and does. First, he shocks them by washing their feet. He takes the demeanor of a common household servant and he tends to their dirty, smelly feet. And then he adds the comment, do as I have done. And thereafter he tells them that one of them is going to betray him. And next he informs Simon Peter that he will deny him not one time, but three times. And finally, and here we come to the most devastating news of all, Jesus says that he is going away. And that they will not be able to find him. My children, he says, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, beloved, all of this stuns the disciples. In quick order, feet washing, betrayal, denial, and departure are all thrown at them. And it is just too much to digest. It overwhelms them. Fear fills their soul. Anxiety grips their hearts. And in such a situation, our Lord and Savior knows that he needs to do something quick. And he does it. He goes out of his way to comfort and to console them. And he does so with the words of John 14, 1 to 6. And with all those other words that follow after. So let us together look at them and learn from them. If they comforted our late sister, then they also have the power to comfort us. I preach to you Christ reassures his followers. And he does this by telling them first about the promise of his departure. I should say the purpose of his departure. Second, the promise of his return. And finally, the power of his person. So, beloved, just how does the Lord Jesus Christ go about ministering to the troubled hearts of his disciples? Well, he he does so by telling them three great truths. And the first truth is to be found in verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. When his sad and shaken disciples hear this, they, they must have asked themselves, what is this? Is Jesus going to the temple in Jerusalem? Is he going to take possession of it, clean some of its rooms and make them ready for us? Is that what he has in mind? Of course, a closer look at what he says indicates that that's not what he has in mind. But rather, he is referring to a much different house. 
He is not speaking about that earthly temple in Jerusalem, but rather he is speaking about the Father's heavenly hope. It is that abode, that glorious dwelling place, that ultimate hope of God's people that he has in mind. Oh, and as for his reference to rooms, that is meant to underline the fact that this this dwelling of God, of which and to which he is referring, is not a isolated and solitary place. You know, our God may dwell in unapproachable light, but he does not dwell alone. He dwells there with the Son and the Spirit. He, he dwells there with his people. And there is space for many people there. All kinds of rooms have been filled already, but all sorts of rooms remain to be filled. All sorts of people are meant to enjoy his company, his glory, and the beauty of his presence. Our Father's house is huge, and it has space for many. But then also as our Lord Jesus speaks about this special place, he adds something. He announces that he himself is going there. Now in a way that should not have completely surprised his disciples. Back in John 7 verse 33 he had said, I am with you for only a short time and then I go to the one who sent me. And in the next chapter he had said, I am going away where I go you cannot come. And so it, it is not as if his disciples had not been told that he's going somewhere. No, he had told them. But it simply hadn't registered. But now, beloved, here in our chapter, it appears that it is beginning to register. The words are are starting to, to sink in and to sink home. And they raise questions. Why is he doing this? Why is he going away? Is he sick of us? Have the Pharisees finally gotten to him with all of their criticisms and accusations? Has he reached the saturation point? And now does he simply want to go home and get away from it all? Is he giving up? Beloved, all of those questions are understandable. But they're all very far from the mark. The reason for his departure has nothing to do with his bad treatment on earth or with his state of mind, but rather it has everything to do with the needs of his people. He's leaving for them, for us, for all of his children, also for our sister Van Popten. He's going away for all our sake. He's going, as he says, to prepare a place. A place with the Father. A place in heaven. 
You might say as a trailblazer, as a pioneer, he is going before his disciples in order to clear the way, remove every obstacle, and make everything ready. Oh, and what a great and comforting message that is, especially for the disciples then. You may know there were all kinds of Jewish controversies and uncertainties about the afterlife in those days. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were constantly at each other's throats about this matter. And the Sadducees adamantly maintained that there was no resurrection from the dead. And their views had influenced many people. And in addition, it has to be admitted that the Old Testament is not totally clear on the matter either. You know, the Old Testament filled with its shields and its Gehennas and its pits. A fuller revelation was needed. But I might also add, if it was not totally clear for the disciples then, sometimes it's also not totally clear for us today. Indeed, I might ask, is there any less confusion today about the afterlife in our world, in in the context in which we live and function? Well, now, beloved, it is over against all of this uncertainty and this speculation that there stands Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And he says, I'm going away. I'm going away to prepare. I'm going away to prepare my father's house for you. You see, he affirms very clearly that there is a life to come. He knows precisely what it is all about. For him it holds no mystery, no uncertainty, no controversy, no darkness. He knows the way up and into it, and he's going to make it ready. He's going to roll out the red carpet. And beloved, we shouldn't lose sight of it. At times I fear we may. At times we as believers get so tangled up with this life. And you know, sometimes we think that life consists exclusively of, well, material things, human relationships, social achievements, recreational pastimes. In short, this life becomes everything. It becomes the object of all of our dreams and hopes and energies. Oh, and if this world does not derail us, then sometimes the idea that as Christians we can change it and and transform it and as it were bring heaven down to earth, that controls us. The idea that this planet and its people are perfectible. If only we try hard enough and work long enough. 
Our vision tends to be horizontal. We are such earth-bound creatures. And the result, we turn our back on the Father's house. And we turn our back on what has been and is being prepared there. You know, it's like setting out for a picnic to a most beautiful lake. But somehow you get distracted and you end up eating under a stop sign on the way. What a mistake. The only way for a man and woman to live, as the writer to Ecclesiastes tells us, is to fear God, keep his commandments, and all the while keep your eyes firmly fixed on the blessed future. No matter what, you have to keep looking up. You have to keep looking ahead. Because you just know that the greatest, the best, the most glorious experience is yet to come. Keep your eyes fixed on it. Keep them fixed like our sister Van Popte did all through her many, many years. And even when she was dying. But still, beloved, the fact that Christ prepares a place in the Father's home is not the only truth that Christ reveals to strengthen his disciples. There's a second truth as well, and you find it in verse 3, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. Notice how emphatic and insistent the language is here. Our Lord Jesus Christ doesn't put all of this forward as as some kind of a noble suggestion. He doesn't say to them one day, friends, I'm thinking about going away. What do you think about that? And neither does he say, if I go, I, I may come back, but then again, maybe I won't. In other words, this is not unsure language. Earlier he had said, I am going away. Now he says, I will come back. I will take you. Without any hesitation, he stresses that at the climax of history, he will turn on, return on the clouds of heaven and gather together all of his people from the beginning of the world to its end and from out of all the nations and tribes and peoples of the earth. He will assemble them as new people. As people with glorified bodies and souls. But then too, beloved, notice also how personal the language is here. It's filled with eyes, with what he will do himself. I go, I prepare, I will come where I am, where I am going. You hear, this is not some detached, abstract, distance, arm-length promises that we're hearing. 
Well, Christ is in it. Fully, completely. Person. Yes, and in that connection, notice one more thing. Namely, just how communal and intimate the language is as well. This is no cold savior. This is no indifferent redeemer. No, the picture is that of a father who grabs his son by the hand and leads him safely onward. He holds him close. He keeps him near. He leads him on. And the result, all distance, all separation is banished. And so I would remind you for a moment that there was a lot of that in Jesus' day. So much in the world then stressed the gulf between God and man Why go to the temple and and look at all of its courts. There's a court for the Gentiles and there's a court for the women and a court for men and a court for the priests. Everything is separated from the Lord to a greater or lesser degree. And even the priests knew separation. They could go only so far. And only the high priest could go any further and he could only do that once a year. Separation. It was everywhere. But then along comes Jesus Christ. And he says, a day is coming where there will be no more barriers. The barrier between God and man will be gone. The barrier between the sacred and the secular will be gone. The barrier between heaven and earth will be gone. And how will that happen? Christ will break them down. He will return and demolish them. And he will come and he will pull us to himself. He will reach down and take us to be where he is. Where he now lives. He says he will bring us home. He will usher us into his house. He will show us our rooms. We will sit at table with him. He will enfold and he will embrace us forever. We shall be where he is. And never will he go away again. So why then? Should our hearts be troubled? Indeed, when one of us dies in faith, as our sister from Popta did, there is no reason for panic. Of course, there may be sadness and pain. Who will not miss someone who has loved much and been much loved? But then to know that Christ does not abandon his, his dying saints, but, but that he takes them home to himself. To know that now already, he takes his children home, and that one day he will come again, and he will take all of his saints 
to be with Him. Does that not lighten our sorrows? And does that not fill our hearts with expectation and with joy? So, beloved, we've seen a bit about the purpose of his departure, the promise of his return. But there's one more truth not to be missed in our text, and that is the power of his person. And you notice how this comes out as the result of verse 4. There the Lord Jesus says, you know the way to the place where I am going. To which Thomas reacts, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? Trust Thomas to speak up. He's the blunt man who faces fears, doubts, and confusion head on. He refuses to nod in agreement when really he doesn't get it. He's the champion for all of those who are afraid to speak up and to speak out. But Thomas, you know that what you see is what you get. So bluntly he states, Lord, you think that we know the way, but we don't know. First, we don't know where you're going. And second, We don't even know the way. Well, what does the Lord Jesus say to him then? He says, Thomas, and all of you listen, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What most remarkable words. Unusual words. Even I would say outrageous words. Look, Jesus claims to be the way. And of course that's a saying that has many sides to it. For one, you can say from the rest of the New Testament that when Jesus claims to be the way, he is announcing that he is the way out of sin, out of darkness, out of the grip of the devil. And in addition, when he says that he is the way, he is saying that he is the way onward to forgiveness, righteousness, and life. Upward to the throne, forward to glory, homeward to the Father. On the cross, He made a way. And that one way through sin and death makes all of these other ways possible. But if Christ is the way, He is also the truth. He knows the truth. He speaks the truth. He lives the truth. He embodies the truth. He is the truth. The Apostle John tells us already at the very beginning of his gospel, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And he says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And with those words, John isn't saying that the words of Moses are untrue and accurate. 
nor that they are something other than the words of God. But rather he's saying that when Jesus Christ came, we received the fullest, the most complete, the greatest unveiling of God himself and of his truth. And so Jesus is the way and the truth, but he's also the life. What does that mean? Of course, Jesus teaches us a way of life as well as a way of living. You know, the Old Testament frequently speaks about two ways. There is the way of folly and there is the way of wisdom. And as well, the Savior often speaks about two ways as well. There's a broad way and a narrow way, the broad way that leads to destruction and the narrow way that leads to life. And in so doing, he is saying that men need a path, an unerring map of life, a role finder, a guide to direct them safely around and through the pitfalls and chasms of this life. And Christ claims that in this sense he is our life. He is our example, our model, our pattern, our guide. He leads his sheep along the path of life. But then, beloved, as much as Christ may be the life in the sense of a pattern for living, he is much more even, we may say, it's power. Think of what he says at the tomb of Lazarus. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. What breathtaking words. What a most unusual thing to say about oneself. I am the resurrection and the life. You know, really, that's the kind of statement that's only made by either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. And which is it? Which is he? But beloved, the crucial moment arrives. Jesus comes to the tomb. He He calls for the stone to be moved away. He offers a prayer to the Father. He issues a command, Lazarus, come out. And there is silence everywhere. Suspense hangs heavy in the air. And then a rustling sound is heard, a shuffling of feet and out he comes. There stands Lazarus in his resurrection pajamas. And Jesus proves that he is Lord. Little wonder that the scripture says elsewhere, Christ is our life. Christ in us, the hope of glory. 
God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Christ lives in me. The life I live by faith in the Son of God. Everywhere the affirmations ring out. Christ is our life. The life we are to live and the life by which we are to live now and forevermore. And truly, beloved, Christ is it. There is no other. For look, these claims that he makes are not only great, they're also so very, very exclusive. You know, he doesn't say hesitantly or politely or softly, I, I'm, you know, I'm one way that you just might want to consider. Or I am one source of truth that you just might like to embrace one day. Or I am offering you a really neat way to approach life. Now majestically he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. It is the way, the truth, the life. He is so bold as to declare that his way is the only way, his truth is the only truth, his life is the only life. There are no alternatives. He's not one of a whole series of options. Folks, he is it. And forget about everything else. You need to believe in Him and Him alone. You need Christ and Christ only. And that is now, beloved, what needs to be there at the heart and the center of our confession in life. And when it is there, you'll find the Father. For it is by acknowledging that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life that we find the Father. And when we find the Father, we find our way home. Home into His house. Into His presence. Into His pleasures and joys that are forevermore. So little wonder that our Savior says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust in me. That's what our sister Van Popte did. Thanks to the grace and the spirit of God. She trusted. She trusted in him who is the way, the truth, and the life. And now she's home. Home with her Heavenly Father. Home with her Savior. And may we, like her, look to Christ. And may we be led home as well. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. 
For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.